0: fact, when I was a kid, our family didn't celebrate Halloween. We weren't Jehovah's Witnesses. We were simply non-denominational Christians. We celebrated other holidays like Easter and Christmas. We just didn't celebrate Halloween. This meant no costumes, no haunted houses, no pumpkin carving, no dunking for apples, and it meant no trick-or-treating. While the other kids in the neighborhood walked door to door wearing costumes and hoping to get goodies we were holed up in our house october 31st was like any other day except the porch lights were out the house lights were out and we were pretty much pretend we weren't home why you might ask well my mom believed that halloween was the devil's day the imagery of the day ghosts, and goblins, and witches, and skeletons evoked the occult for her, and she was serious about this. At the time, our church held what was called Hallelujah Day, which was pretty much a lock-in where there were games and candy designed to keep neighborhood kids safe, and besides, it wasn't really Halloween Day, it was Hallelujah Day, but my mom was like, nope, it's still Halloween so we didn't do that either. Our family was too Christian, even for church. So this mentality stuck with me for a long time. I went away to college, became an evangelical Christian, and I was super evangelical because I didn't even celebrate Halloween. I really avoided doing anything for Halloween until I wanna say my late 20s. And then once I started deconstructing some of my beliefs, I felt more comfortable with participating in Halloween events, and I made up for it as much as an adult without kids can. The most fun for me was and still is visiting haunted houses and going on haunted hayrides. It's similar to the feeling of going on roller coasters. The adrenaline rush is awesome. That said, growing up like this still has an effect. I still don't about the spooky season unless someone mentions it to me and there's not a lot of kids in our neighborhood so we keep our lights off during trick-or-treating times but even if my mom hadn't been so adamant about not celebrating Halloween we probably wouldn't have gone trick-or-treating anyway while I don't remember my dad expressing an opinion about the spiritual aspects of Halloween he did express his opinions about the dangers of the physical world. He felt that trick-or-treating was dangerous because we would be going to the doors of strangers and would be given treats. Treats that might be dangerous, dangerous tricks. A concern based in urban legend. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Pastor Podcast. Welcome to Pot Stirrer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. This episode is going to be a little different. We're going to get into the October month spirit and talk about urban legends. But first, about a week and a half ago, I went to the first She Podcasts Live conference. It was held in Atlanta, Georgia. The whole thing was super awesome. I got a chance to meet some wonderful content creators from all over the country in various parts of the world who are doing some amazing stuff. While I was in Atlanta, I also got together with Helen and Valerie, hosts of Falling in Love Montage, another great show on Flying Machine, which was freaking cool. The weekend was exciting, and I learned some cool things that I will work on implementing over time to make your experience listening to or Podcast even better. How about today's episode. When I'm not keeping up with political and social events and raging about dear leader ruining our country and world one bad decision at a time, I dabble in my other interests. True crime and unresolved mysteries, pro wrestling, simulation video games like The Sims and city skylines. I also enjoy urban legends. And as this episode continues, it'll likely become clear as to why. And I hope you'll enjoy this as well. I was inspired by a podcast I've been listening to lately called You're Wrong About, which is a podcast debunking common misconceptions about modern historical and cultural events. They did an Urban Legends episode last year that was really good. Definitely recommend. Now, a few weeks ago, I asked you all for your input on a Potstirter podcast discussion group on Facebook about what urban legends you wanted me to talk about. And the top three, which I'll discuss here shortly, are chosen by you. Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts. And if you're not part of the Pasteur Podcast discussion group already, enter that into the search bar on Facebook and click to join. When we're talking about urban legends, what are we referring to? Snopes.com, an urban legends and conspiracy theory fact-checking website, has a great definition of urban legends. Snopes founder David Mickelson says, quote, Urban legends are best described as cautionary or moralistic tales passed along by those who believe or claim the incidents befell either folks they know personally or acquaintances of friends or family members. Whereas the setting of more traditional legends places them in the realm of long ago, urban legends are set against the backdrop of contemporary times. The stories take place in shopping malls and co-ed dormitories and feature such up-to-date boogeymen as terrorists, aides, and inner-city gangs. Though some of these tales go back a century or more, their details are continually being updated to keep them current with the times. The horse and buggy of bygone days becomes the BMW of today, End quote. Folklorist and urban legends expert Jan Harald Broomwand says, urban legends are, quote, true stories that are too good to be true. These popular fables describe presumably real, though odd, events that happened to a friend of a friend, and they are usually told by credible persons narrating them in a believable style, because they do believe them. The settings and actions in urban legends are realistic and familiar, homes, offices, hotels, shopping malls, freeways, etc. And the human characters in urban legends are quite ordinary people, end quote. Urban legends are stories that stick into our minds because they're dramatic and are said to have happened to someone we might have had some connection to. They're not set in a land far, far away. They're set in your town, or one near you, or a town your friends or family live in. And these myths speak to our sense of what's right and wrong, our values, and our deepest fears. And while these stories are often spread through mainstream or alternative media, these are most often spread through word of mouth. It's one thing to read somewhere that there's some child sex dungeon underneath a pizza shop. It's another thing when your cousin tells you their spouse's best friend's sister-in-law saw it. Even if you can't verify that that story is true, it feels real because it happened to someone you know or someone you're peripherally connected to in some way. So we're in the October month season, and one thing that is synonymous with Halloween, particularly in the West, is trick-or-treating. Think about it. Kids walking around in costumes, usually in the evening, going door-to-door, asking strangers for free candy and other sweets. Mmm, tasty. What could possibly go wrong? Well, according to this particular urban legend, Halloween candy and other treats are fraught with danger as anonymous neighbors with ill intentions are adding things to these sweet giveaways that don't belong there. In some instances of the legend, the intent is to trick, simply to have a little fun at kids' expense These would be the kind of people who like to watch the world burn. But in other cases, the intent is more sadistic. The perpetrators want children to suffer and or die. The perpetrators hate children, are mentally ill, or are simply sociopaths. According to sociologists Joel Best and Gerald Horiuchi, the first versions of the adulterated Halloween treat legend were circulated in the late 1950s, and those early accounts primarily focused on poison treats. But by the early 1970s, additional dangers were added besides the poison in the Halloween candy. Now young kids and their parents had to also worry about sharp objects placed in treats. Pins, needles, razor blades stuck in apples and candy bars. These stories were printed in newspapers and magazines and circulated across the United States and Canada, but were primarily spread through word of mouth. State legislatures such as California in 1971 and New York in 1982 passed laws against Halloween sadism, and schools and other institutions taught children how to inspect their Halloween candy for adulteration. In addition, Best and Horiichi found in their research that in response to this legend, many parents restricted trick-or-treating for their kids, inspected their candy for tampering, and arranged more controlled celebrations for them. Think the church hallelujah day party I mentioned a little bit ago. But is the adulterated Halloween treats legend based in reality? Kind of. The best way I can put it is this. It's a mixture of true-to-life events that somewhat resemble the legend but differ in the core details and a phenomenon of someone acting out based on the legend. S. and Horiuchi looked into 76 reported cases of Halloween sadism reported by daily newspapers between 1958 and 1984. A third of these incidents are alleged to have occurred between 1969 and 1971. And there was another spike in 1982. The vast majority of these incidents were reported not to cause major injury or illness. Few were able to be verified in court records. In some cases were even alleged to be hoaxes. Out of the 76 reported instances of Halloween treat tampering, there were reports of two deaths. Now, these two deaths were indeed real but let's look into them deeper. In 1970, five-year-old Kevin Taston died from a heroin overdose. Initial reports stated that heroin was planted in the candy he got while trick-or-treating, but later on, it was discovered that little Kevin had found heroin in his uncle's home and ingested it. The drugs that killed him didn't come from laced treats. The other death was in 1974 and the victim was eight-year-old Timothy O'Brien. Timothy died after eating a pixie stick in his Halloween candy stash laced with cyanide. Later, it was determined that his father had given poisoned pixie sticks to both Timothy and his sister to collect on life insurance policies and to three other local kids to cover up the crime. But out of these five kids only Timothy ate the candy. The poisoning was discovered before the other children, including Timothy's sister, could be poisoned. In both of these fatal incidents, Halloween candy had not in fact been tampered with by strange neighbors. Now, life has at least at one point imitated art. A real-life verifiable incident occurred in 2000, when 49-year-old James Joseph Smith of Minneapolis was charged with adulterating a substance with intent to cause death, harm, or illness after sticking needles in several pieces of Halloween candy and handing them out to local children. In that incident, one 14-year-old was pricked, but there were no other reported injuries. So while, of course, the adulteration of Halloween candy by mean-spirited neighbors can happen, and has happened at least once it is highly highly unlikely your kids are going to get tainted candy when they go out for trick-or-treating this month now what led to so many people embracing the candy adulteration story as some epidemic so when it comes to the spikes that best and horiichi found in halloween sadism incidents they theorized was an indirect response to the Tylenol incident earlier that year. An unsolved series of poisonings where seven people were killed by cyanide-laced Tylenol capsules in the Chicago area. The researchers' explanation for the earlier spike in reported incidents from 1969 through 1971 is a bit more complex. And to be honest, this does make a lot of sense to me. The late 1960s through the early 1970s was a time of strife and social change in the US. Vietnam was raging, the civil rights movement was sunsetting and a number of urban riots had occurred. Then there were a number of marches and student protests as well. Drugs were a major concern in American society and Nixon's war on drugs was beginning, which I'll get more into in the next episode when we jump back into the drug war. Best and Horiuchi don't mention this, but this is also the period of time of second-wave feminism, and the Stonewall Riots had occurred around this time as well. There was a lot going on for Americans, especially white, middle, and upper-class Americans to be worried about. Things were changing, and a huge theme that goes along with social change is the question, what about the children? Bestin Horiuchi mentioned that during the late 1960s and early 1970s, child abuse began to be promoted by doctors and social workers as a major social ill and the press responded with stories about child abuse incidents so between the concerns about child abuse and the social upheaval at the time many parents had deep concern for the safety and welfare of their children and while these urban legends about tampered halloween treats weren't new even at this point Their spread was driven by the world Americans were living in at the time. And that tends to be a theme with urban legends, that the insecurities we might feel based on what's going on in society at the time lead us to spread stories of questionable veracity, but sound like they could have happened. And in our crazy, crazy world, these stories tick all of our mental boxes of what is right and true, and we fall for them, hooked. Line and sinker. Speaking of falling for things, the guys over at Divisive Issues, Ryan, Phil, Daryl, and Sly, have fallen into bleach. No, not that bleach. They are deep into their multiparter on the manga series bleach, going from enjoying it to banging their heads against walls, and even to the point of Ryan now shipping Ichigo and Byakuya. Really, really? Really? Anyway, they're on part three. The series is great and I've been feeling it. So check it out. Listen to the latest in divisive issues on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher, or go to their website at franzradio.com slash divisive issues. And to check out all the great podcasts The Flying Machine, go to flymachinenetwork slash shows. Full disclosure. This might be more info than you care about, given the tone of the episode, but October tends to be a weird month for me because my dad passed away in late October of 2006, the day before Halloween. So even though it's been over a decade since he died, and the pain isn't quite as fresh, I tend to think about him a lot. As I'm sure I've mentioned in other episodes, my dad and I were very close, And I took his death pretty hard. It was one of those turning points that led me to rethink and eventually change a lot of what I thought, believed, and did. It was one of the factors in my eventual deconstruction from evangelical Christianity. It's strange to think that he's been gone 13 years this month. Oftentimes, the most cherished memories of a deceased loved one aren't huge, expensive trips or major milestones. Is the little things. The times you spend with them just living everyday life, spending time riding around with my dad while he did his weekend errands, was one of the coolest things to me. I'd learn my way around the city, my dad would tell stories about his childhood, and it was just great bonding time. Sometimes during those rides, he would visit his friends and I would tag along. One of his good friends, Master Moore, was an Aikido master. Aikido is a Japanese martial art that focuses on pressure points. Master Moore, who is now deceased as well, owned and ran a dojo, a martial arts school, on Detroit's west side on Davison near Dexter. So we'd go there, and I'd sit and watch the students practice while my dad would talk to his friend. On one of those visits, I'm just wandering around at the dojo, and a little poster taped to one of the support beams caught my eye. So I read it. It was a fax from the Detroit police. It was a warning message that had been sent to businesses in the community to alert residents. According to the fax, people were being initiated into local gangs by killing a random person. The way they would decide who to initiate would be to ride around at night without turning on their headlights and see who flashes at them. The first car to flash at them, to signal them to turn on their headlights, the gang members would follow that vehicle, and once they made it to their destination, kill the occupants. So to stay safe from being murdered in a gang initiation. Don't flash your headlights. As a kid reading this, the message was super scary. And a big reason why it was super scary is because it seemed real. I'm sure a lot of people back then figured this was really happening. See, this was in the early 90s, and during this time, carjackings were huge news. Carjacking, if you don't know, is when someone is robbed of their car, or in other words, when someone steals a car while the driver is still inside. These are terrifying crimes that have occasionally turned deadly. While carjackings occur nationwide, Detroit is the carjacking capital, as it has the highest rate of carjackings of all major U.S. cities and has had that for years. I'll put it this way. Some of my driving habits, including leaving a lot of space between myself and a car in front of me at traffic lights, comes from having grown up in the height of the carjacking craze in the Motor City. But while carjacking is all too real, is the headlight gang initiation real? Nope. According to Jan Harold Brunvand, These headlight gang initiation messages began circulating via fax around 1993, and per press reports, seemed to be most popular in fall of that year. In the cases of the Lights Out legend, warning messages were purportedly sent from police departments and government agencies in cities all over the country, not only in Detroit, but also Memphis, St. Louis, Dallas, Atlanta, Norfolk, New York City, Baltimore, LA, Sacramento, and Honolulu, so literally from coast to coast. Press articles and letters to the editor also mentioned several other cities and regions around the country. And these faxes were sent to businesses and institutions where these were posted in the message spread by word of mouth. One example Runevan uncovered, which was signed from the Chicago Police Department, said this, quote, be aware, There is a new gang initiation. This new initiation of murder is brought about by gang members driving around at night with their car lights off. When you flash your car lights to signal them that their lights are out, the gang members take it literally as lights out. So they are to follow you to their destination and kill you. That's their initiation two families have already fallen victim to this initiation ritual be aware and inform your families and friends don't flash your car lights for anyone end quote over time as it seems to be with urban legends details were added to make the lights out story sound more legitimate such as the gang involved was the bloods and my stepfather or a friend of a friend said they heard this or This came from the local police department and gave a name of a supposed officer. In some cases, the initiation was to be held on a specific date range in the near future. An additional gore was added, such as body parts being removed from victims as trophies. Initially, this legend was spread primarily through fax machine forwards. and was a popular example of fax lore. Legends spread using fax machines which were big in the 80s and 90s. Fax machines were common at the time, especially with government agencies, organizations, and private businesses. This makes sense given the time period. This was before internet usage was as pervasive as it is now and before smartphones were in the hands of anyone other than extremely early adopters. Smartphones were invented in 1992 the lights out legend was also spread through phone messages CB radio mainstream media and of course word of mouth but by 1998 this also spread to email forwards as well this new outbreak seemed to be inspired by the movie urban legend that came out that year while the spread of the lights out legend seemed to be a flash in the pan dying down in the u.s after the 1990s it spread to other countries over time. For example, folklorist Gonzalo Sotero documents the spread of the Lights Out myth in Mexico around 2005, which was primarily transmitted through email and the media. But even though the Lights Out legend has spread far and wide, no known occurrence of this happening in real life has been verified through law enforcement or mainstream media sources. While many of these bulletins were said to be from police departments, this was rarely ever the case, and when it was, it was from careless officers who received the alerts and forwarded them on without looking into their veracity further. Now, there are a ton of other urban legends that are related to cars and the dangers people face from being out and about in this cold, cold world. This last legend we'll talk about is along those same lines. And it may make you want to watch your back. According to this legend, a woman is driving on a freeway at night. And she looks in a rearview mirror and sees someone flashing their headlights at her frantically. That's really weird and alarming, the woman's thinking. She speeds up, but the car is keeping up with her flashing their high beams at her erratically. She tries to lose them to no avail. She gets home, freaking out at this car following her. The car pulls up and a man gets out. The woman's thinking, oh no, I'm about to die now. The man opens her back seat and he pulls out a man wielding an axe who was in the woman's back seat the whole time, lying in wait to kill her the man is able to subdue the would-be killer until police arrive. Come to find out, every time the man in the other car flashed his high beams, the killer in the back seat ducked so the woman wouldn't see him. She had reason to be alarmed, but was afraid of the wrong thing the whole time. Vond mentions another popular telling of the story that takes place at a gas station, where a woman uses a credit card to pay for her gas, and it's accepted But the attendant calls her inside because he says there's a problem with her car. So she reluctantly goes into the station where the attendant tells her that there's an axe murderer in her back seat. And they have already alerted the police. Other retellings of the killer in the back seat story include the killer having a meat cleaver or some other deadly weapon. Brunvon notes that the freeway version came first starting in the mid-1960s. And the gas station versions came later, initially with a counterfeit bill being the excuse for the woman being called back, and later updated with the credit card version. By the time the early 1990s rolled around, the legend was modified with versions that included gang members, usually a person of color, in the back seat killing the passenger for a gang initiation. So basically, a melding of the killer in the back seat myth with the lights out legend. But even with some of the details particularly the setting being changed with retellings over time the key elements always stay the same a woman is always the target and both the potential backseat attacker and the rescuer are men david mickelson notes the sexist framing of this legend the powerful nature of both the backseat killer and the rescuer and both the weakness and obliviousness of the woman not only is she unable to rescue herself but she needs a man to let her know what to really be afraid of. If race is brought into the tale, Mickelson points out that the killer or the rescuer are generally black to highlight the prejudices either of the storyteller or the victim. Of course, depicting the killer as a black man highlights racist perceptions of black men as dangerous and violent, especially towards white women. If the rescuer is black, the idea is that the presumably white woman's prejudices in play as she fears the black man in the car behind her flashing his headlights will be her doom in the framing of the killer in the backseat myth particularly when it comes to gender makes sense given that gender roles were going through a shift in the 1960s and 70s and then in the early 1990s two things happened first of all third wave feminism started around this time This wave of feminism focused on sex positivity, diversity among women, and intersectionality. Secondly, a lot of Americans were concerned about gun violence, urban street crime, and gangs, and these worries were often racially tinged, a holdover from the Reagan era demonization of the urban black community as welfare queens, crack addicts, and violent thugs. These fears were seized on by a number of politicians from both major political parties, most notably President Bill Clinton, who signed into law the 1994 Crime Bill and the Assault Weapons Ban the same year. But whether the tale is told to reinforce racial prejudice, or dispel it, or even if there are no racial undertones at all to the telling, the tale is consistent in the framing of women as weak, vulnerable, and unable to care for themselves during times in American history, when women were engaged in movements to advance gender equality. But is the killer in the backseat legend true? Yes and no. There have been documented cases of perpetrators hiding out in cars, lying in wait for a victim to rob, rape, kill, or some combination of these. So that is a real danger. But there have been no documented cases of this story taking place with all of the key elements. The would-be female victim, the male backseat killer, and the male rescuer either in a car or at a gas station. The closest documented case to this, and possibly the inspiration for the legend, is a case in 1964 where an escaped convict was hiding out in a car and was discovered and shot by the police detective who owned the car. So it's definitely important for all of us to be aware of our surroundings. That's Street Smarts 101. But the legend itself seems to be just that, legend. So why are so many of us sucked into believing and spreading urban legends in the first place, regardless of how true they actually are? A huge theme in urban legends is anxiety about a changing world. In general, people are afraid of change. And they're especially afraid of change when the changes that are occurring upset their societal privilege or sense of place, their sense of morality, what's right and wrong, what's socially acceptable, how things are supposed to be. The kinds of people they're uncomfortable with are moving into their neighborhood or being hired where they work, or the people, beliefs, customs, and entertainment that were once the default are no longer. And they have to share space with others who might not be like them and have different beliefs, customs, and entertainment preferences. And when it comes to the people in their lives, particularly the women and children in their lives, these fears become even more pronounced. Not only the world is changing, but social progress and equality will corrupt our wives and daughters and endanger our children. A number of episodes of Pot Stirrer Podcast have focused on the rise of Donald Trump and of Christian nationalism in reaction to these anxieties regarding pluralism, integration, and expressions of social equality based on economic class, religion, race and ethnicity, sexual orientation, and gender identity. But urban legends can also spread as a result of some of these same anxieties. Word of mouth is the main way these myths gain traction. But with the rise of communications technology, especially the power of the internet and social media, urban legends have more ways to spread and be disseminated farther and wider than ever before and in a shorter period of time. Those of us who follow politics tend to think about overtly political conspiracies in urban legends, such as QAnon, Pizzagate, and the false allegations of crisis actors tied to mass shootings such as Sandy Hook and Parkland. But while many urban legends are not overtly political, They also speak to people's deeply seated beliefs, attitudes, and prejudices. There's a book called Bowling Alone, written by political scientist Robert Putnam and published in 2000. It's pretty good. I think it's one of those books that give a lot of food for thought, even with it being almost 20 years old. He writes about the rising disconnection in American society since 1950, or in his words, a decline in social capital. Demonstrated by a decline in membership in civic organizations where interaction is primarily face to face, such as parent teacher organizations, lions clubs, and Freemasons, as well as a growing distrust in government institutions. He argues that this lack of social capital has led to a decline in civic engagement needed for a strong democracy. To put it plainly, Americans are no longer connected socially so they're less likely to participate in political and social processes. A strong democracy requires participation by the people. And if the American people aren't participating, democracy fails in the United States. Putnam theorizes that this decline in social capital is due to advances in technology, particularly television, that lead to people individualizing their interests and their time. Since the book was written in 2000, it didn't get a whole lot into the internet and didn't touch on more modern forms of entertainment and communication, such as social media, but I would imagine that the argument would be much the same. Now, it can be argued that the popular forms of social engagement have changed from organizations that were staples of older generations, such as American Legions and bowling leagues to different types of organizations today that still allow for face-to-face interaction, such as improv troops and neighborhood watch groups. But in any case, Putnam's ideas are definitely worth thinking about. Something he discusses in the book is that part of the decline in social capital may be related to urban sprawl as people became disconnected from their neighbors. Urban sprawl started to become a major trend in the 1950s, with the creation of the Eisenhower Interstate System, and accelerated into the 60s and 70s due to the civil rights movement, racial integration, and white flight. Putnam didn't really delve into the racial aspects of this, but there is a bit of subtext that people weren't exactly trusting their new neighbors who weren't quite looking like them. And perhaps this social disconnection that Putnam talks about feeds into why urban legends have so much currency today. While urban legends aren't unique to the past 60 or 70 years, these often get told and retold based on social and political change occurring at the time and the anxieties people have about the upheaval around them. Even though we often think of urban legends as frightful tales, they're often a way to insulate yourself from the increasing disconnection from the people around you. Urban legends serve a purpose. They reassure people that they're right about their beliefs and they have reason to be afraid, but if they're vigilant and cautious, they live a moral life, and they believe and do the right things, they will be okay. Urban legends reinforce what people already think by adding an evocative tale that, oh my goodness, really did happen to my bestie's spouse's friend's stepmom from Kalamazoo. And yes, people, if you're wondering, Kalamazoo is a real place. I've been there. I have family there. And speaking of real things, urban legends tend to be framed as plausible falsehoods or morality myths, but on occasion, they are indeed true. And that's the spooky part, which adds to the power urban legends have in our imaginations. Happy Halloween, and thank you very much for listening to or Podcast. Next time, we'll get back into the series on A Drug War, so stay tuned for that. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the others in the catalog on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're really loving the podcast, please subscribe. It's free, and you'll be able to get the latest episodes as soon as they drop. And I am most active on Twitter at PotstirterCast, so follow and interact with me there. And for all things Pot Stirrer Podcast, go to potstirrerpodcast.com. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future, because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.